Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. We left off on page 120, and we have been contrasting um, the inward-focused nature of American Christianity over and against the outward-focused nature of biblical Christianity. And so we have been talking um, about, uh, you know, American spirituality uh, having having the spiritual life on the inside. We introduced this idea of intranos inside of us, and then um, extranos outside of us. We talk about how the word and sacraments of God are extranos outside of us. And it's not that we we fall into a false dichotomy and say, well, it's either inside of us or outside of us, but rather we acknowledge. Um, that it's both, and yet there's a priority and an emphasis on that which is on the outside. Okay? The outside shapes and forms the inside. How so? The Holy Spirit comes to me in word and sacrament, shaping my inner spiritual life of faith as I receive these gifts of God. So there's a, there's a difference in emphasis. The external is emphasized, and there's even an order to it, a kind of logic to it, where uh, the external informs the internal. All right. In American Christianity, though, as Wolf Mueller's been, been teaching us from his own personal experiences, from his own observations, um, in most of American Christianity, the external's been cast away entirely. Everything is a matter of what happens inside your heart. And when that happens, um, you lose certainty. And that's really what um, he's been after heretofore in this chapter called Go Play Outside. All right. On page 120, he has a subheading, Hide and seek with the Holy Spirit. Let's read a little bit from Wolfmuller. I grew up in a liturgical church, but by the time I was in middle school, it was all praise band all the time. On my journey into the Lutheran church, my first visit back to the liturgy was a disaster. I mentioned before the distress of my first visit back to a liturgical Lutheran church service with the robes, the chanting, the turning this way and that, looking this way and that, crossing this way and that, I had no idea what was happening. The absolution was particularly troubling, and the sermon was not particularly moving. (laughs) Neither were the hymns and the organ. And for many of you who have come into the Lutheran Church, you might reflect on this as as a similar experience to your own. Who knows? You may... um, you may have uh, your own tie-ins to this. Wolfmuller continues, I boldly pronounced this verdict after we were out of earshot. I just didn't feel the Holy Spirit there. All right, well, let's go a little further. He says, I had been trained in the revivalist worship services of American Christianity to sense the presence of the Holy Spirit with my feelings. Goosebumps, a pit in my stomach, quote-unquote, losing myself in the music or the moment were indicators of the Holy Spirit's presence. If I was, quote-unquote, moved, the Holy Spirit was there. In my return to the liturgy, I was not moved. The Holy Spirit had obviously left the building. Okay. Now, I, I, of course, am coming at this from a little bit of a different angle as a pastor or what, you know, would more broadly be called a professional church worker. So that when I visit a, when I visit a church, I can't help but, you know, see it as a Christian, as myself through one lens, but then through this other lens as a professional church worker. And so, you know, you look at the other professional church workers and you see how they're conducting themselves within the profession. All right. Um, 
And it was very interesting to me that at one uh, big box evangelical service I attended, um, the, the lead singer of the worship band who was front and center said, Let's get the Holy Spirit in this place. Let's get, um, the Holy, let's get you all to experience God. And then up fires the electric guitar and the drums. And I thought, yep, now that's accurate. Um, because that's what, I, I mean, that's just, it's stated what the intention is and it's stated what's going to cause that. So what causes the Holy Spirit to descend and the, um, the experience of God is the music. And so here you can see, what we're going to see is when you've taken away the sacraments that Christ has given, baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper, you've, you've removed all those, there's a vacuum, and that vac- into that vacuum gets sucked other stuff. And one of the chief things that that, that is, is the, is the worship experience. And it's even called this, you know, not the divine service, the divine one serving us, not even, not even, um, uh, yeah, well, if it's not that, who knows what it is. But it's just, it's the worship experience. And so part and parcel of that is, you know, we've got to provide this experience of connectivity with God. We've got to evoke this this idea that the Holy Spirit is at work moving you in your heart. Okay, now, of course, where in the scriptures is any of that? And that's kind of the that's kind of the subtle move, right? Until you ask yourself the question that's like plain as the nose on your face is, where does the script, where do the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit moves via music? Um, where does it say that the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts or the presence of God comes to us via music? Nowhere. It's always and ever through the Word. And then as we're going to see also through the sacraments, we're going to see Jesus himself connect, particularly the sacrament of baptism to the presence of the Holy Spirit. But it's true just as well for absolution, isn't it? Remember the little section on absolution? What's the first thing Jesus does? He, he is, uh, he's raised from the dead. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his wounds. And then the first thing he does is breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. So he connects the Holy Spirit with absolution. We're going to see in just a minute how he connects the Holy Spirit with baptism. All right, so maybe this resonates um, with you to one degree or another, your own observations or experiences. These are the experiences and observations of Pastor Wolfmuller, and um, for my part, I can, I can largely corroborate these. It's a, it's a strange thing that's going on in American Christianity. All right, now, to show us where the Holy Spirit locates himself, as it were, Pastor Wolfmuller is going to refer to John 3, and you see that over on um, page 121. And um, he does a good enough job of kind of spelling out the text. So let's just go through that together, since this it gives us, you know, right, right from the source and stream of the Holy Scriptures. The subheading that Wolf Mueller has chosen, but does the Bible train us to hunt for the Spirit with our feelings? That's the question. John 3 records an important conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish council. The council was the council of judges established by Moses to help rule the nation. Nicodemus, in other words, was an important man. He comes to Jesus by night to preserve his reputation, but he seems genuinely interested to know who Jesus is. In fact, Nicodemus would eventually become a follower of Jesus and would assist Joseph of Arimathea in preparing the body of Jesus for burial. But this first conversation with Jesus did not begin well. All right, now quoting Nicodemus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus wouldn't be buttered up. (laughs) Instead, he tells Nicodemus that he is ignorant of the kingdom of God. Jesus gets to the point. Nicodemus must learn how to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were about the business of being good enough for God's kingdom. They were going to make it into the kingdom of God by their religious works and observances. Jesus, though, 
doesn't speak a word about work or our activities. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is God's work. Salvation is a gift. It's a new birth. This astonishes Nicodemus. And even in this idea of you must be born again, okay, did you have any choice, any decision, or any active participation in your birth? No. <laughs> in your in, in your birth, you had no decision to be born. You were born. You had no activity in it. I mean, you might have flailed about a little, um, but you were being born either way, whether you liked it or not. Um, you were passive in it. And so it takes away choice. It takes away activity. It takes away any active participation. You are a passive participant in your being born. And it's precisely this Jesus uses to describe what's happening to us through water and the Spirit. It's a birth from above. You're passive in this experience. That is to say, it's God's work, not yours. And that right there is kind of the key to the whole thing. Seeing baptism as something God does to us, seeing the Word preached as something God is doing present tense to us, seeing the absolution as the same, and then seeing the Lord's Supper in the very same way. This is something God is giving and doing to us, and we receive it, and we actively say thank you, but we passively receive it all as a gift. Okay, so uh, Nicodemus is is not getting this. Of course, when Jesus says it's a new birth, this astonishes Nicodemus, and then Wolf Mueller continues with the quote from John 3, 4, how can a man be born, Nicodemus asks, when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is thinking about wombs and mothers, our earthly birth. Jesus is teaching about baptism, water and the Spirit, our heavenly birth. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Alright, so how is Jesus answering Nicodemus? Alright, you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Alright, what has Nicodemus just said? He's just said, well, okay, born again, does that mean I get back into mom's womb and am born a second time? That's why Jesus is saying, no, that which is flesh is flesh. All that would do is create a second fleshly you, even if it were possible. Of course, it's not possible at all, but that would just create a another you out of the flesh. Um, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you have to have this new birth and become an entirely new creation. And that womb is the water and the spirit. And what is that? That's holy baptism, of course. But I think if we think along biblical lines, what's the first place in the Bible where we see water and the Spirit together and a new birth? Genesis, with the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters and the new birth of a new creation. You see, so what is God doing? He's making a new creation. The first creation through water and the Spirit fell into sin, contaminated, no longer born in the image and likeness of God, but born in the image and likeness of fallen Adam. All of this taught in Genesis. So what is God going to do? He's going to start over. I have come to make all things new, Jesus says. And to start over, he starts in the same way, water and the Spirit. You must be born again. So from that, we become first fruits of this new creation. And the rest of creation, the new heavens and the new earth, is going to follow. We get to watch it. We'll be there when he lays the foundations of the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be singing for joy, just as the angels did with the original creation. So this is a high and awesome honor that God has called us to. All right, so um, again, not to lose the force for the trees and all of this all of this wonder, where is Jesus locating the Spirit? With the water. So we don't have to go hunting for him. You know, we don't have to go, uh, like, have our Holy Spirit antenna up. Where is he? Where is he? Okay, there he is. I, I feel it in my heart. Um, we can know because God says, here is the Holy Spirit. That cuts my feel it. Whether I feel it or not, I know he's there. And that, that fact is so important as we sit in the sanctuary and listen to God's word. You know, you can listen to the Old Testament reading and quote unquote not feel the Holy Spirit. 
Does that mean the Holy Spirit is absent? Of course not. That's his word. It's the God-breathed, it's the Spirit-breathed Holy Scriptures. Of course that's the Spirit. So then I can identify and say, well, if I'm not feeling it, who cares? I know he's there because God says he's there. You see the difference in that? Then I can let my feelings be whatever they want. Good, bad, sensitive, insensitive, feeling it, not feeling it, whatever. It doesn't matter. I know where to look for the gifts and grace of God. All right, that's the point that we're driving at. So, again, Jesus says, that which is flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We are new creatures, spiritual creatures, which, as you can see, are still physical creatures, um, but an elevated kind of physical creature, a saint, a spiritual man. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, which is hilarious, because, of course, he begins, you know, Nicodemus begins by flattering. Nicodemus is, in a, in a sense, Nicodemus is the icon of the most righteous man you can have. Um, because he's a Pharisee, but he's also obviously very devout and respectful and open to Jesus. He, in every sense of the word, is like the whole man. The best you can be is a fallen man. And what does Jesus say to him? Eh, you have to be totally born again. <laughs> Which is to say, whatever you are has to die and go away, and you have to be reborn and made entirely new. So it shows that there's no righteousness in us that avails before God or that is sufficient. We can't patch up this old creation and somehow make this acceptable to God. The whole thing has to be dismissed, buried with Christ and through the waters of baptism into his tomb and brought forth in his resurrection through baptism entirely new. Made a new creation by water and the Spirit. That's what has to happen. And what, how masterfully Jesus teaches all of that. All right, so let's continue on. Let's go just a little further over on page 1 and 22, and then we'll, we'll skip around a bit. We'll skip around a bit. This word of water and spirit, Jesus teaches, is required to enter the kingdom of God. We see here Jesus contrasting the Pharisees' idea of salvation through works with his own divine doctrine of grace. Far from works, far from our own righteousness, far from achieving some sort of perfection that earns God's approval, Salvation is by God's own gift of water and spirit. The kingdom of God comes by promise and faith. And Jesus connects this promise to water. Jesus binds up salvation to his gift of baptism. Some might protest, Jesus is not talking about baptism here. This is using preconceived notions to run from the plain meaning of the text. This conversation with Nicodemus is surrounded with talk of baptism. You can see uh, John 1, 24 through 34, and then ch- that's before, and then chapter 4, 1 and 2, that's after. So the whole context is baptismal context. Wolfmiller continues, we'll be talking more about baptism soon, and we'll pick up the rest of the conversation with Nicodemus in the next section. But Jesus has more to say to Nicodemus about being born again. All right, and this is key. Now, quoting from John chapter 3, verse 8, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. Now, there's a wordplay here because the wind is kind of identical with the Spirit. So is he talking about the Word or the Spirit? It's intentionally uh, enigmatic. Intentionally, it's like, how am I hearing this? Okay, so the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right? Jesus uses the picture of wind to teach about the Holy Spirit. In Greek, there is one word that is translated either quote-unquote word or quote-unquote spirit. You cannot see the wind. You see what the wind does to the leaves or the dust, and your newly washed car. You can also feel the wind, but Jesus doesn't mention feeling or seeing. It's true, does right? Go back and read it. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. So Jesus isn't talking about feeling the wind or seeing the effects of the wind or anything like that. He mentions one thing. What? Hearing. So Wolfmuller says, instead, he, Jesus, says, you hear its sound. You know the wind is blowing because you hear it. Just remember, or excuse me, Jesus, remember, is teaching about the Holy Spirit. 
How do you know where the Holy Spirit is? How do we know if the Holy Spirit is at work? You hear his sound. The Holy Spirit is heard, not felt. The Holy Spirit doesn't tickle us. He talks to us. Alright, so this becomes a, a very simple thing then. If you, if you just want to kind of get rid of the revivalism and get rid of all, all the stuff that's transpired in these weird ways, you want to just get back to what is biblical native Christianity? What if, what is saints all over the world and in all times and places? What if they, they all believed? It's very simple. Where the Word of God is, there is the Spirit. The Spirit isn't felt, He's heard. If I'm hearing the Word of God, I am hearing the Holy Spirit. I mean, could you think of anything more strange, blasphemous even, to say than you just heard the word of Jesus and you go, I don't feel the Holy Spirit. Okay, do you deny he's present? Are your feelings then, Lord? Where Jesus is, there the Holy Spirit is. Where Jesus speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit is heard, not felt. Okay, so that's Wolfmuller's point. Now let's pause there, see if you have any reaction to that. And if you disagree with that, or you want to kind of wrestle with that, I'm fine with that too. But um, this is uh, rather foundational to identifying the presence of the Spirit. Yeah. Just please. real quick, when we talk about hearing, it just, the light bulb clicked on why Satan wants to say, let's listen to music, because he knows that hearing brings the Holy Spirit, but it's hearing the Word, mm -hmm. so why not? turn it a couple levels away from the word and hear some music, you're still looking for something, but it's the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think that this is um, this is something that we can do that's really valuable, though, too. Um, we can look at all churches spread across America, and we can say, regardless of whatever name happens to be hanging outside of the church, okay, where the word of God is, there the Holy Spirit is at work. We can give thanks and praise to God for that. And, of course, we can add on kind of another level well, where it's rightly understood, rightly preached. And, okay, fair enough, right? Because we saw even this last Sunday that, well, even the devil can quote the Word of God. <laughs> um, but does that mean there's some problem with the Word itself? No. Um, so, so we can give thanks and praise for wherever the Word of God is heard. And, and I think that, too. I think that that's not only charitable, but it's right for us to be, to say, you know, okay, well, I went to the big box church and was the Holy Spirit at work there? Well, yeah, sure, I heard God's word. I heard God's word. And to one degree or another, I heard it rightly preached. So we don't need to deny that. You know, this isn't about a witch hunt or painting people to be out worse than they are. We don't have to deny those things. We can rejoice and give God glory for those things. Um, but where we see something alien transpiring and something eclipsing the Word um, and the Holy Spirit being talked about as something that's produced in us by music or laser or fog machine or impassioned crooning voice or um, people waving their hands, we can go, wait a minute, where is that in the Bible? Yeah. So that's kind of the critique then. Um, the Holy Spirit is connected to the Word. He's heard, and as we heard Jesus say, to the water um, in baptism. And that's where we're at so far. So thank you for that observation. Yeah. One of the things I think that this does is it sets the order of chain of command, too. Because when we talk about feelings... Mm -hmm. It's subjective, mm -hmm. and it's my experience. Mm -hmm. And so I become the center. Yeah. Whereas when we are hearing, it's coming from outside of us. Ah, wonderful. And we're rightly attributing to God, hopefully, you know, especially if we have been in the Word enough to judge whether it's truly the Word or something twisted, mm -hmm. which can happen all the time, too. It encourages us to be in the Word, so we can make that judgment. Yeah, very insightful. I love the way you put that. Just to kind of summarize in my own language, if if the Holy Spirit is dependent upon how I feel, it's all me at the center. Whereas I can set myself aside, as it were, and say, I don't care what's going on in me. God is speaking. and That's a beautiful right, thing. He's at the center. Yeah. When, when we're in our deepest darkness, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
it's the only place we can turn to yes. that we can trust. Yes, exactly. And it's outside of ourselves because our feelings are enmeshed at that point. Right, right. Yes, it's so important. I mean, this is where we're not quibbling over doctrine just to say we're right, you're wrong. The problem, and I raise this example, this is really about salvation and spiritual attack and warfare. Um, I raised the example maybe last session or a couple sessions ago of the of the rash we've seen of high-profile American evangelical pastors and musicians just leave the faith because of exactly what you're describing. Very dark times come upon them. Um, we would call this uh, with Luther Anfechtung or Tentatio. Anfechtung is the German word for this spiritual trial that comes when we lose family members, if we lose our job, if friends forsake us, if the church turns its back on us. You know, these are opportunities for anfechtung, this this trial. And tentatio is what it is in uh, in Latin. And so, if you if everything is internal, and that comes, and it's precisely your internal that's the problem. You've got nowhere else to turn. And so you simply say, that's it. It was there. It's not there. I don't have it. I'm just acknowledging the reality, and I'm out. I'm walking. I'm gone. I'm, I'm out of the Christian faith. Or I don't know where I am, but I'm not here. Right. Um, so when these trials and temptations come, when the inside, when our hearts become the very battleground, the very thing being contested, and we're not certain, we have nowhere to stand inside of ourselves, it is absolutely essential that we turn outside and say, but this is what you've said. Mm-hmm. Where which gives you the the um, peace that passes all understanding. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to offer at that point, and it's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, because I, that at least is my rock bottom, you yeah. know, where I know it's in the Word. I don't feel it, but God tells me it's so. Therefore, it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah, and that's the problem when we identify the Holy Spirit um, or being spirit-filled or being close to God with an, with an internal feeling, um, we see how fickle all of that is. And that's where I kind of made the comment, like, God is not your feelings. And I know some people scoffed, but here we actually see how you could be tempted into thinking that, um, that it actually is something that happens to us if we're not careful, if we're not watchful, we can say. Boy, and then what could be more fickle? I mean, my wife will tell you, like, Rody's feelings before pizza and after pizza are profoundly different. There's a lot of things that yeah. do that, actually. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God be praised. Everything is wonderful. His glory fills the earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you for that. One of the things that I like um, is it, it isn't an either-or. Mm-hmm. Um because um, our music, um, I am often really inspired and feel. Yes. Um, but our music is very much word based. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you can see the the scriptures all through the hymns right. in there, and I really appreciate how uh, this church does a whole hymn all the way through. Doesn't do you know the odd numbered verses or you know, <laughs> verses one and two, and because <laughs> yeah. the. the uh, author or whatever um was writing something and a lot of times to get that whole message you have to sing read whatever the whole hymn Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly right it's such a such a wonderful blessing and rich heritage we have if you if you look through the hymnal you'll find things from almost every century going all the way back and then from from all over the world uh you'll find african authors and italian authors and American authors. <laughs> and you'll also find hymns drawn from all kinds of faith traditions. Because this is something universal to the church and universal to Lutheranism is we'll say, where it's right, it's right. <laughs> We're not going to fight you like, oh, I don't know, you said the right thing, but you've got the wrong colored cross on your, on the sign outside your church. No! Truth is truth. God's word is God's word. We rejoice in that. So, um, where Thomas Aquinas writes a great hymn, um, it's in our hymnal. 
where where an evangelical writes a great hymn, it's in our hymnal. Where Charles Wesley writes a great hymn, it's in our hymnal, uh, and and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's it's really rich and rewarding. And um, there is something lost when you you know kind of with this idea of contemporary, which is a troubling word anyway, because what does contemporary mean? But when you just say basically say, okay, well, all we play in our in our church is hymns written by Americans in the last fifteen years. Something's lost. Something's lost. And then you can kind of compare the richness of the quote unquote contemporary church song with the and I think there are there are some good contemporary songs. I mean I don't mean to bash the whole thing. There are some good contemporary songs out there. Why not? Um again, we're we're not here to like have any agenda. We're here to recognize truth and depth and goodness and beauty and profundity and give credit where credit's due and use it in service of God's people and in opposition to Satan. But yeah, there is, uh, when you limit yourself to like the last 15 years in America, you're gonna, how many are you gonna have? Five, ten, I don't know. How many are you gonna have if you reach out globally and for 2,000 plus years? Well, you're gonna have hundreds. You're gonna have so many that we can't keep them all in our hymnal. Uh, just as a comment about our hymns, of course, the older hymns tend to be more scripturally based and more thorough in that regard. And I'm, I'm thinking, uh, when we sing in chorus, Concordia, for example, in the in the chorales, um, in general, we are we're singing scripture, and in fact, uh, you know, many of the words of scripture are word for word in in the music of Bach and and Handel. And uh, I think one comment our director said one time. When you sing this, think of yourself. Well, you are preaching the word of God by your voice. Yeah, yeah. When you are absolutely. singing his word. Absolutely. We're not just singing blind, general, oh, hallelujah, glory, glory, without any specific thing. We're singing scripture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So well said. We're confessing that scripture and, uh, to one another and to, to the whole world. Yeah, very well said. All right. Well, let's jump back into, uh, to Wolf Miller here. Um, Oh, did you have an observation? Sure. And this has evolved also into the reality of our lives, how we recognize that as postmoderns, mm-hmm. the church included, where uh, people get to imagine their own identity rather than the God-given identity they have. As I heard Dennis Prager say, I don't trust the medical profession anymore. They can't tell the difference between a penis and a bo- vagina anymore. Oh, dear. Oh, that's putting it rather uh, bluntly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Well, what a beauty. Um, what a beautiful reality we have. And I, I really hold this out that one of the, one of the most attractive things for the church to do in, in our present Time and especially as we look to the near future, will be to simply continue to communicate truth, because that in and of itself is going to be attractive. It almost doesn't even matter <laughs> what the truth is, right? Just truth, uh, because that will attract people, and they'll say, "Oh my goodness, I've often thought that. <laughs> I've often thought the king has no clothes." Yeah. Okay, um, so let's just get a couple more observations from uh, Wolf Mueller from this page. I'm just going to say them to you, you know, so we're not going to have time to read through it all. But he says, look, the Holy Spirit, his talking isn't outside of us. And we can draw that too, like the wind is outside of us, and it's the sound of the wind that we hear. It's not something that happens inside of us, except for that sensation of hearing the thing, right? And that's where it comes to us. We're not denying that there's any internal reality, any intranos. It's just that it all comes to us externos, outside of us, um, externally, and then enters in. Um, so that speaking of the Holy Spirit is not in our hearts, but in the Word of God. You know, a funny thing happens, and maybe you've observed this too, when the Holy Spirit speaks in your heart all the time, it's funny how often He agrees with you, how often he likes the things you like and despises the things you despise. Have you noticed that? Um, I, it's always easier to find flaws in other people than it is in ourselves. So most readily available. God put this on my heart to tell you. I immediately think, okay, this person has something they want to tell me, and it's so important to them, they think they need to deify it. <laughs> God, God put this on my heart to tell you, uh, did it come right from God's Word? 
let's hear what scripture verse you're going to quote. Um, because if not, I'm, I'm not convinced that he in fact did put it on your heart. I'm, I'm quite convinced that you think it's important and important enough to claim that it's God saying this. But this is a fine way we have of divinizing our own opinions. And that's the other thing. And claiming that the Holy Spirit is working in us and speaking to us when, truth be told, it's indistinguishable from what we ourselves want. So that's um, that's going on here. And then I think Wolf Mueller's final observation at the very bottom of 123 is kind of a fitting tie-up. I was wrong after I visited that Lutheran service. I might not have been moved. I might not have felt the Holy Spirit. But he was there. He was there in the Word, doing his gracious work even on me. So we don't go church shopping looking for the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't walk out of the church service going, boy, I didn't feel the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes it goes like this. I didn't feel fed. All right. Well, did maybe the preacher, maybe there was no reading of God's Word. And then you didn't feel fed. And I would say, amen. You should have had God's Word. But if God's Word was there, you were fed. If that word wasn't contradicted or blasphemed already, you were fed. And if the preaching was a faithful exposition and application of that word, then indeed you were fed in the way that Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Um, So you may feel it, not feel it. You may even feel terrible after a sermon. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we have to admit that we're not God and we're not the Holy Spirit and he's going to work in on us and work on us. And sometimes, sometimes after preaching a spirit filled sermon, um, we are going to, you know, after hearing that preach, we're going to feel bad. What would be a biblical example of this? Jonah walks through Nineveh and says, repent or God's going to nuke all of you. Amen. That's the sermon. How did they feel after that? Well, they didn't have a parade and celebrate themselves. They felt bad. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They weeped and wailed and mourned. They fasted and they even went to the extent of like every living thing. They covered their animals in the same. Okay. They felt bad. Was that the work of the Holy Spirit? Yes. How could it be otherwise? So sometimes the Holy Spirit makes us feel bad and he does this for, for us and for our salvation. So again, this just goes to show um, you know, and I think, well, let me just make one other thing. Sometimes we walk into church too with our, um, uh, so as a professional church worker, we call them felt needs. And so what that is to say is you come into the church service on Sunday morning and you have a certain set of expectations because you have these needs that you feel. So I feel the need to have this clarified or to learn something today or to um, have these specific words of comfort spoken to me. I have these needs that I feel, these felt needs. Okay, And I come into God's house expecting to receive, uh, expecting those needs to be met. And I walk away disappointed when they're not met. And I might say something rude to the pastor. I might say the spirit wasn't there, or I wasn't fed, or my needs weren't met. Now, you can probably tell by that who's at the center. Me and my perceived needs, like what I think is important. So part of going to church on Sunday morning is humbling ourselves and saying, these are my perceived needs, but what if I'm wrong about that? And entrusting, humbling ourselves and entrusting ourselves that God actually knows what we need. And he's actually going to minister to those deeper needs and those needs that are even more important for us. And so we don't want to insult God and I think, you know, the same thing is, is true of our prayer life. Jesus doesn't say, you know, when his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, he doesn't say, well, what felt needs do you have? Now articulate those to God. He says, when you pray, pray in this way, our Father. That is to say, here are the things you actually need. And here are the things to pray for. And I don't really care if those have nothing to do whatsoever with your felt needs. These are your actual needs. And so we want to go into the sermon on Sunday morning going, Lord, your word is here. You are speaking. What do I need to hear? Maybe I need to hear in part, even just kind of passively, whatever it is I think I need to hear isn't actually all that important. Really, I need to just put that aside because this is of utmost importance.
things, right? So there's this really kind of profound spirituality to all of this when we just let, act as little children. We let go of our own self-deification, come into the service and say, Lord, what do you have for me? And then he teaches and we receive that. Okay, I see a hand popping up. Can we um, get a microphone back to back here? I don't want to identify you in case, you know, you'd be brought up on trial in the metaverse in a few years. I struggled with this for a couple of years. Then I was sent on a lovely Meals on Wheels to one of our congregants. Mm -hmm. And he, God bless him if he's still alive, so straightened me out that day. I had no idea. I thought I'd just drop a meal off and off I'd go. But um, I used to struggle heavily with, is this me or is this God? Which can completely freeze you up mm -hmm. because you, you're stuck in this work thing subtly where you want to do it right you want to get it right you want to get it right and this fella was so freeing to me he said and just do it because god will correct it if it's not right so it like totally takes me out of the equation you know when i'm struggling instead of just freezing and doing nothing by because i'm so concerned about getting god's will or is this my own inner feeling thoughts coloring everything Mm -hmm. And 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 I don't need to consider that anymore. It's free. It, it truly is a life of freedom because I I need to take the consequences because I may not always make the right decision that it came from God, but He'll check me on it and I'll count on that one. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I I believe that wholeheartedly. Is and, and that's right. When you were saying you know, you pray for what is God's will for you, mm -hmm. you know, and you get way beyond me. Take me out of the picture. But I so struggled with trying to figure out what is me in the picture and what's really God. Yeah. And this fellow was just so wonderful. When you know, I, I had no idea the conversation, but I recall that all the time. He was with me on that meals on wheels. But, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would I would just kind of add to that. So if you do have a, a felt need that's urgent and not being addressed, um, and even after you know gladly receiving what the Lord does have for you, that's why He gives pastors in a pastoral office. You know, give me a call or a text, or if you want me to respond, maybe email. <laughs> Sorry, um, I'll uh, I'll do the best I can. But but yeah, j just get a hold of me and let's and let's talk about that. Let's see if I if there's any um, word and wisdom from God that I can, um, you know, use to to help enlighten and edify you in that in that specific need. So it's not to say that those things are unimportant. It's just to say that we shouldn't make idols of them. We shouldn't judge everything that God has for us on the basis of such a narrow and kind of personal uh, well, criteria. Such a born perfectionist too that it was hard I didn't want to get it wrong. Right, of course. Yeah. What's me, what's yeah. him, and I know who has a higher favorite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well said. Well said, please. Yeah, uh, Liz will appreciate this. I, I'm a little confused. Yeah. Uh, there, the scripture says that if we confess with our lips mm -hmm. that that uh, Jesus is Lord, mm -hmm. we have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. 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 Or, or I mean, even what comes to my mind is no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm, I'm looking sure. for. Thank you. Um, so at any rate, we have the Holy Spirit as we walk into that church seeking the Holy Spirit. So it, it's a little bit confusing from the standpoint. I, we, the Holy Spirit's with us all the time. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. 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 And. And uh, Vicar said an interesting thing the other night that the, as we're going to work or walking on the beach or whatever we're doing, that the entire Trinity's with us, mm -hmm. you know, and just going around with us. And so, yeah. you know, the, for those guys to seek the Holy Spirit uh, and have to bring him up when he's already with us, is oh, I see that's confusing to me. Yeah, I see your point. Well... And there's, um, yeah, in truth, there's a little bit of a, a fluidity in which we speak because even having the Holy Spirit, being possessors of the Holy Spirit, we'll still sing the the hymn, um, "Come, Holy Ghost, God and Lord, um, with all your graces now outpoured um, in each believer's mind and heart, etc." So, um, yeah, there's a reality that we we have Him and we want more of Him, and um, 
And yeah, there, so there's that kind of, yeah, sure, there, I guess there's a tight logical tension. If you have, you, you know, why would you want, want? Yeah. And yeah, but it's both and. I mean, that's just the reality of the hymnody and spirituality. But yeah, I think your point's, um, maybe in a slightly different direction. And that's just, um, why are you looking for him all the time when you, when you already have him? And that's, yeah, that's one indicator. I think, and then I think Wolfmuller would say, well, and if you are looking at him, where does he identify himself? Jesus says that you hear, the Spirit. That is, when the Word of God is preached, there's the Holy Spirit. And in the waters of baptism, there's the Holy Spirit. There's the one who gives us the spiritual birth and um, and indwells us, is poured out upon us and indwells us. Yeah. Okay, all set. So, um, as we go along here, now um, we're going to we're going to look at some of the objections here. Let's jump over to one twenty four. And um, toward the top of 124, you'll see uh, the heading, just because it's physical doesn't mean it's law. So Wolfmuller writes, and, and here he's, he's kind of quoting the voice of American Christianity here, stuff can't save you. Wolfmuller says, this is a philosophical argument, not a biblical one. But it creeps around in the shadows of American Christianity. If God works blessings only on the inside, then any kind of physical object will always be disconnected from salvation. If it's stuff, it's law. But in the Bible, stuff is always saving us. Okay. Well, I think you can see this, um, for example, again, just your, your mileage may vary, but by and large, there's a tendency in American Christianity to strip the sanctuaries of everything and just have it be bare. Um, there's no, I mean, very few, if any, references to Jesus or the cross or even like, you know, the pulpit has kind of been done away with. Um, the baptismal font, in many cases, the altar has been replaced by a drum set or a stage or nothing. Um, so this idea of just taking it all away, um, is kind of a, is kind of an effect of this idea that stuff can't save you. So it's not important. And in fact, it might even be harmful or detrimental if you came to think that it could save you. All right. Um, now, Wolfmuller says that in the Bible, we always see stuff saving us. If you look over on the left-hand side of this page in the, in the gray box, quoting um, Jesus from John chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have life, or eternal life. All right, um, look, picking back up with Wolfmuller in that second paragraph under this subsection. When the Israelites were grumbling, God sent snakes to bite and attack them. When they repented, he told Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now imagine a, a pole with a, with a snake on it. And use your imagination, and you might be inclined to see the cross with Jesus on it. And God instructed the people to, when they were bitten, to look at the serpent on the pole, and they would be saved, healed. And Jesus uses this in John 3 as the exact example. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the people would look upon it and be saved. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's he talking about? on the cross, that all would look to it and be saved. Not from the venom of vipers, but rather from venom of the viper, Satan, the serpent, who has bitten us and infected us with sin. So we look upon Christ crucified and the devil's venom is drained from us and we're saved from our sins. Okay, so does stuff save? Of course, God in the Old Testament makes the fiery serpent set on a pole and then... Um, Christ as the ultimate uh, salvation to which all these other things point um, is, in fact, physical. It's the stuff of his body nailed to the cross, his blood shed for our forgiveness. That's all stuff by which we're saved. All right, so this is kind of humorous. Um, Wolfmuller continues, Imagine being one of these people sitting outside the tent where Moses was crafting this broad serpent. The smiths are hammering away while you're getting sicker and dying. Moses, what's going on in there? 
Here you can tell that Wolf Mueller, before he was a pastor, was some level of comedian. He actually was. Like, he would perform. He's a hilarious guy. If you ever get to spend any time with him or see him speak, he's a great guy. Really talented. Really funny. Moses, what's going on in there? We're making a broad serpent to put on a stick. <laughs> Why? It's what the Lord told us to do. If you look at the bronze serpent on the stick, then you will be saved. That's absurd. You should make some anti-venom or find some doctors. If the Lord wanted to save us by a miracle, why didn't he just do it? Why all this rigmarole? It does seem absurd, but it would be even more absurd if the work was completed and the serpent was lifted up on a pole, the people refused to look at it. Looking at a bronze serpent is ridiculous. Stuff doesn't save us, the people would say, and die. It pleased the Lord to save the people through the serpent on the pole. It was a very physical thing that brought very real help. All right, so this is helping us think now more in biblical terms. We could think the same thing, couldn't we, of, uh, of the temple or the tabernacle before it was the temple. And that's exactly what Wolf Miller brings up next. Page 125 up at the top. The same thing is established in the tabernacle. There was a real altar with real animals and real blood and real fire. There was the tabernacle and all its furniture, real things in a real place. There were the priests, the most holy place, the incense table, the Ark of the Covenant, and all the other holy things. Through these physical things, the Lord delivered his mercy and forgiveness to his Old Testament people. That the Lord uses stuff to rescue us comes to its fullness in the flesh and blood of Jesus. Now quoting Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What's that mean? That's the incarnation, right? He becomes man. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Wolfmuller writes, and by that will we have been sent, or no, I'm sorry, it's not Wolfmuller, he's quoting Hebrews 10 now, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Now Wolfmuller, the blood of Jesus is real blood. His body is a real human body. These real physical things accomplish our salvation. It is the quote-unquote stuff that wins us eternal life. When we are tempted to think physical things are law and not gospel, we need only remember that the dead body of Jesus is the true physical thing, is a true physical thing. God continues to use physical things to save us. Okay? And we know that because there's the physical Bible containing his word. There's a physical preacher preaching that word. There's the physical water of holy baptism. There's the physical bread that he says is his body and the physical wine that says he is blood. And he says, eat and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we're now, we're now wrapping our heads around a thoroughly biblical theology um, where God does in fact work through stuff, things that he chooses. All right, let's um let's jump over to 126 where we'll get a summary and and then maybe we'll introduce baptism or maybe we'll hold off. So the summary on top of 126 um and here you know it's going to be a little disjointed if you're just listening online or something, but top of 126 Wolfmuller asks this question, what do we find? And then here are three bullet points. First bullet point, he says, first we see the promise of forgiveness bound up to water. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this is a quotation of Acts 2.38. And notice the connection, again, between the water of baptism and the Holy Spirit. So, repent and be baptized, that's washed with water, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. It's not a washing away of dirt from the body, but a washing away of sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So water and spirit, just as Jesus said to Nicodemus and John. Now, later on, of course, in, in um, like Romans 6, for example, we'll see how closely connected this water is, this water of holy baptism is with the cross of Jesus. In baptism, we are buried with him, that we might be raised with him. In other words, the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sins that comes to us according to Acts 2.38 in holy baptism comes because it flows from the cross and is delivered to us. How do we see that so explicitly in the cross itself? When Jesus' side is pierced, what comes out? Water and blood. And this is so unnatural, so miraculous, that that John even comments and says, Water and blood, I do not lie. He who saw bears witness. This isn't a normal occurrence. Water and blood flow forth from the side of Jesus. And then we see what? It's that water that washes us in, in Revelation the the saints in heaven, their robes are white. Why? Because they have been washed in what? The blood of the Lamb. That water and blood flowing from His side. In that we have a beautiful picture of baptism that washes us and cleanses us from all our sins. Uh, no doubt also we have Jesus handing over the Holy Spirit. This is one of the places where our English translation has done us no, uh, no, no good service here because um, in the cross of Jesus... Um, he hands over his spirit. Um, literally in one translation, in an earlier English translation, it was, he gives up the ghost. Uh, may as well write in there, he kicks the bucket. Uh, <laughs> that's not what's going on. When Jesus dies, even in that act, he is handing over the Holy Spirit. His side is pierced, and what do you have? Spirit and water and blood. All right? Now, what is, now if you, if you're interested in this, pick up the epistle of John and, and go reading around chapters three and four. And he's going to say, these three bear witness. The water, the spirit, and the blood. Now, this is coming from the only disciple that we know who was an eyewitness to these things, himself standing at the foot of the cross, seeing all of this. And he says, this is our theology. So, we see from the side of Jesus, water, blood, and the Spirit flowing out. We see this baptism that is, as Peter says, a washing away and a receiving of the Holy Spirit. All right, so that's just biblical theology. This, by the way, on Pentecost. This is the sermon right after the sermon Peter preaches on Pentecost. Fun fact, the very first, um, the very first public sermon preached by the apostles after Pentecost, do you know what the texts are? Two psalms. I got a kick out of that because we were preaching on the Psalms last night in our midweek service. We're going to continue to preach on the penitential Psalms. Um, and it's like, why would you preach on the Psalms? Isn't that like, you know, preaching on how to dance? Don't you kind of ruin it? Aren't the Psalms to be prayed rather than preached? <laughs> but right here at the very mouth of the, of Pentecost and the sort of the birthday of the church, if you will, the very first sermon, a, a spirit-filled sermon, is a sermon on the basis of two Psalms. All right, what do we see? Second bullet point. Next, we see the promise of forgiveness in the cup of Jesus' blood. Now, we're just introducing it here. We're going to spend a lot of time on this. So don't, even though we're going fast, don't feel as though we're running roughshod over it. But just take in the words of Jesus. Here, quoting from Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says, drink of it, all of you. Drink of what? The cup, his cup. Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant. We'll have time to go through all this language. Slow it all down and what does it all mean? But just take in the words. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why am I, why am I drinking it for the forgiveness of sins? What is it? It's the blood that was poured out for many. It's the blood that he sheds on the cross is now given to me. So you can see that the forgiveness given to us in baptism, the forgiveness given to us in the Lord's Supper aren't different forgiveness. They all, they both flow from the cross of Jesus. Baptism takes on a form that it happens to you once. Communion takes on a form that it happens to you recurrently, over and over. There's great wisdom in those two things that God has done for us. One that's unchangeable and never repeated, and another that's constantly repeated. All right?
Third, and we'll wrap up here for the day. Third, we see the promise of forgiveness put in the um, put in the mouth of Jesus' disciples. And we covered this already in a previous section. John 20. Hopefully this is just a refresher. Jesus says to his disciples, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so here Jesus gives... Um, that authority to human beings, to sinful human beings, to go forgive sins and retain sins. And so then through their, that word of holy absolution, our sins are forgiven. Is it a different forgiveness than the cross? No, it's the same forgiveness one on the cross communicated now through the lips of uh, a pastor. It's given to the church and then the church speaks publicly through the pastor. All right, so those are the three physical connections. You've got water of baptism. You've got bread and wine that are his body and blood and the sacrament of the altar. And in a sense, albeit it's a bit different, you've got the pastor's lips announcing the forgiveness of sins to you. God works through physical things. We're out of time, so let's stop there. I'll hang out for um, just a minute or two, but I've kind of got to get running myself um, today. So, the Lord be with you.